0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Do not use the show's content as the basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick Edelman is an investment advisor representative of Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor which furnishes this program and also a registered principal of EF Legacy Securities and affiliated broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Now... Here's Rick Edelman.
1: Welcome to The Truth About Money. I'm Rick Edelman. A very happy 4th of July holiday weekend to you. We're giving the team the weekend off, so we thought we'd share some of our favorite calls on a variety of topics important to you. If you've got some downtime over the holidays, think about your retirement. This is Independence Day, after all. And if you're not sure you're on track, call us A 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888 Or visit us at com. That's com, And we're heading off to Nyack, New York. Joe's on the phone. Welcome to the show, Joe. What can I do for you?
2: Hi, Rick. I just wanted to pick your brain on uh, two investment topics that you often touch upon, but just wanted to get a little more info from you. Okay. Um, and it's uh, rebalancing portfolios and um, diversification. So I guess first, uh, for rebalancing a portfolio, number one, like what's the primary reason for doing it, and secondly, when is the optimal time to do it? Is it should it be quarterly? Should it be annually? Or should it be based on you know some other percentage change or, or something like Got that? Got
1: it. Okay, let's talk about the three most important things you must do to properly manage money. Uh, number one is diversification. We need to have money invested in a wide array of asset classes. Don't make any big bets, right? Don't have all your money in the bank. Don't have all your money in the stock market. Uh, Don't put all your money into gold. You need to recognize there are 16 or 18 major asset classes in the market sector. Stocks, bonds, government securities, foreign securities, natural resources, precious metals, oil and gas, commodities, uh, emerging markets, exponential technologies. The list goes on and on and on. You should have... Uh, A little piece of all of this stuff, a globally diversified portfolio. Second, invest for the long term. Don't try to figure out what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Look at the next decade. Look at your long-term goals of getting a kid into college in 10 years, your own retirement in 30 years. So we're looking at long-term exposure. And third is rebalancing. And this is uh, perhaps the most important and the most frequently ignored by most people. Uh, And let me illustrate for you very, very simply. Let's say that you have two assets, two investments, okay? doesn't matter what they are, just two of them. So forget about owning 16 of them. Let's just have two. And you have 50-50 of each, half your money's in each one. Well, we know that different investments perform differently over time. So let's say that one of them does better than the other. And now your 50-50 portfolio is now 60-40. It's no longer balanced the way you wanted. You wanted a portfolio 50-50, but it's now 60-40. Rebalancing fixes that. Rebalancing says we're going to sell some of the 60 down to 50. We're going to buy some of the 40 up to 50 to restore the portfolio model to the way we wanted it to be. If you don't do that, Joe, if you don't periodically rebalance, the asset that did really well. Let me ask you this: over a long period of time, which is going to produce more profits, a bank account or the stock market?
2: Uh, the uh, the stock market. That's
1: a reasonable expectation. I'm not making any predictions here. We all know past performance no guarantee of future results. Any assertion of the contrary a federal offense. Having said that, it's a reasonable thing since historically that's what's happened. If that's true, if one, if one of those two is cash and the other one is the stock market, the the stock market is going to go to sixty. of the total assets because it's growing in value and then it becomes 70 and 80 then 90 and all of a sudden you're not 50-50 you're
3: 90-10
1: and you're 65 years old and it's 2008 just in time for the stock market to crash upon your retirement and you're wiped out and you're not retiring at 65 you're now working till you're 80 that's why you rebalance to reduce the risk that you will have too much money in a given asset class where one bad thing can create havoc to your personal finances does that make sense?
2: uh yes yes um and, and one follow up question on that is mm-hmm. there and I get that right you're you're keeping your your risk profile in sync with your your time frame and all that good stuff um but is there also are there opportunities to not try to time the market but to make some you know no, by no, kind of selling no by and buy and no, no,
1: no no, no, no. This is not market timing. Let me tell you the difference between rebalancing and market timing. Market timing is making a change in your portfolio because of what you think is going to happen. Rebalancing is adjusting your portfolio because of what has already happened. In other words, when I have a 60-40 portfolio and I bring it back to 50-50, I'm bringing down the asset that did well. I don't know which one is going to do well. I know one of them will. I don't know which one, so I wait to find out. And after one of them goes up to 60, that's the one I sell down. So that's the opposite of market timing. I'm not making any guess. This is why I've said on the air in in the past, I'm never wrong. My financial planners at Edelman Financial Services, the $18 billion in assets we manage, we are never wrong. For the simple reason, we're never trying to be right. We're not making a prediction of what's going to happen. We wait to see what happens and then we respond. So we're only rebalancing after the results are in.
2: Okay, and, and when, before I uh, ask that question about diversification, like when uh, should you rebalance? on an That's annual basis? a
1: really, really important question. There are two yeah. ways to rebalance. One is by time, and that's what you said. Do we do it every month, every quarter, do it once a year? How often do I do this? rebalancing by time is the more common way because you just do it on a calendar. In fact, some organizations, your 401k at work, they'll probably set it up for you on an automatic basis where every six months or every quarter, they automatically rebalance your account. It's simple, it's painless, it's easy, but it's not all that efficient because if you're not rebalancing until March 31st, you might miss out on something that happens on February 12th. So you might miss opportunities because of momentary fluctuation in the market. Or, hey, it's March 31, it's the end of a quarter, time to rebalance, there might not be anything going on. So rebalancing by time is inefficient, so we don't do it that way. We rebalance by percentage. We'll take a certain amount of money, put it into a certain asset class for a client, and then we will let it move around and drift within narrow parameters. And if it exceeds that parameter, either too high or too low, that triggers a rebalance. So. We never know when a rebalance is needed, and that's why the only way you'll know is by watching the portfolio every single day. That's a chore. That's a nuisance. That's a hassle. And that's why most people don't like to rebalance by percentage. That's big reason, why I think, why people hire us, because we do that chore for them. We rebalance only when necessary, but whenever is necessary. And as a result, it's much more efficient, much more effective. So you might only rebalance a couple of times a year. You might rebalance a dozen times a year, depending on how much volatility is in the marketplace. So rebalancing by percentage is a much preferred approach, but most folks aren't going to do it on their own, and that's why they hire financial planners, financial advisors to do it for them. Do it one way or the other, Joe. Either do it by time or do it by percentage or hire someone to do it for you, but make sure your portfolio gets rebalanced. It's amazing how often we find people who have a huge amount of money in a single stock or a single mutual fund that they bought a gazillion years ago and they've never rebalanced it. And all of a sudden it's now 30% of their assets, 80% of their assets. They own a piece of real estate, their home or whatever. And it's the dominant part of their assets because they've never rebalanced their portfolio. And they're therefore much riskier today than they ever would have been had they voluntarily chosen to do that.
2: So let's say my, my time frame is is pretty long term, like 10 plus years. And, um, you know, you said earlier that certain asset classes like equities are going to do better over the long run than something in the bank or cash. Like, why wouldn't I scale down my asset classes and just focus on equities and not worry about cash or even, you know, commodities, for example, has been an asset class that hasn't done very well as of late. So, Tell me why it should be fully diversified in, in that type of scenario.
1: Because you might be wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In other words, you just said it yourself. Commodities haven't done very well lately. Why should I own commodities? In other words, you're telling me that you believe past performance predicts the future. You just said you don't want to own commodities because they haven't done well recently. But does that mean that they're never going to do well? What if you're wrong? Mm-hmm. This is what you have to be really, really careful about to avoid in the world of investing is Arrogance. You've got to avoid your ego, don't take as soon as you start to say to yourself, "I know what to invest in because I am convinced that such such and such is going to do well or such and such is going to do terribly. I want to therefore avoid that as soon as you do that. It's your ego talking, it's your arrogance. Nobody knows Joe, nobody knows how confident would you be you watch football, yes.
2: I do, I do, yeah. Do
1: you watch those uh, pregame shows on TV where they're talking about the upcoming games and they all predict who's going to win the games? I, I do. Are I do. you willing to invest your life savings based on those predictions?
2: Nah, no, no way. Why? <laughs> Why not? Well, because, uh, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're, they're wrong, sometimes they're really wrong, you know. It's, uh, it's. So
1: what makes you think that the guys making predictions about football are any worse than the guys making predictions about stocks. They're all the same. That's the point. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Forbes said it best. If everybody were right, everybody would be rich. So you need to be diversified in case you're wrong. Now, having said that, the longer your time frame, the more risk you can afford, and the greater your risk tolerance, the more you can stomach. So sure, if you're a young guy investing for 30 years... You shouldn't have a 50-50 portfolio. You should have a portfolio that is more heavily weighted to equities. That makes sense, yeah. but not exclusively equities.
2: I guess that's the key is, is uh, your balance is going to be more towards equities the longer your time frame, as long right. as you have the stomach. So,
1: point, so. so here's what to do. Go to my website. Go to rickedelman.com. On the main page is our GPS, the Guide to Portfolio Selection, and there you'll be able to to uh, answer a bunch of questions it takes two minutes it's really fast it's fun and it's free and it will show you based on the answers to your questions what your asset allocation should look like based on your
2: situation all right great i will i will do that okay thank you very much Rick.
1: you're very welcome joe i really appreciate the phone call i'm rick edelman you're listening to the truth about money
0: with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: It's The Truth About Money. Rick Edelman here. We're talking about whatever's on your mind, investments, taxes, mortgages, insurance, college planning, retirement planning, buying houses, leasing cars, 888 plan rick in the studio with me, Brandon Corso and Yolanda Waters, both financial planners with Edelman Financial Services. Brandon, you've got, what, 20 years in the field?
4: I have, and most of them
1: are with you. And Yolanda, you're uh, 15 years. 15 years. Uh, Brandon's from our Fairfax, Virginia office. Yolanda from Conshohocken, PA. That's just northwest of Philadelphia.
5: 13 miles outside of the city
1: and uh, two of our 42 offices around the country. And we're taking your telephone calls right now, off to Raleigh, North Carolina, to talk with Karim. How are you? Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Rick. Thank you for uh, taking my call. My pleasure. What can we do for you?
6: I'm looking forward to reading your new book, which is The Truth About Your Future, which leads to my question. So you've talked a lot about how exponential technology can be disruptive to sectors and jobs. And I think of, you know, companies like Blockbuster, Borders, or, or Kodak, and how they were giants within their industries, Right. but they became too complacent, they didn't innovate, and they didn't survive. So, you know, just as innovative technology has wiped out these companies, they can also wipe out jobs. Yes. As you've mentioned before about Uber competing with taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. So, now as I'm leading up to my question, so... Now that my oldest is in high school and he's preparing for college, I'm seeking your expertise again. So I have two questions. One is, what will be the sectors or jobs that will be in high demand within the next 5 to 10 to 15 years? And also, what sort of courses or majors should they pursue in college to prepare them for these types of jobs? You've been mentioning over these last couple of years dealing with exponential technology.
1: So let's, let's talk about the astonishing level of changes that society is going to experience as a result of exponential technologies. It's a theme, as you know, Karim, we've been talking a lot on the radio show for the past several years. It's the focus of my new book, uh, The Truth About Your Future. And what it comes down to is that a great many existing occupations are going to be destroyed over the next couple of decades because of automation and robotics. And isn't all bad news, however, because it means we're going to create a great many new jobs. I'll give you a couple of very simple uh, examples. When's the last time you ever talked to a travel agent? Long time, right?
6: Yeah, it's been a while.
1: And it's because you go online to buy your airline tickets and book your hotel room. So travel agents have been dwindling in the number of jobs that exist. Well, that's not a total crisis because travel agents never made all that much money. The average travel agent in this country makes about $35,000 a year. It's not a very lucrative position in the first place. So, And those jobs are disappearing because of automation. On the other hand, do you have a smartphone? Yes. So do 98% of all adult Americans. Ten years ago, that product did not exist. It's hard for us to remember that, that 10 years ago, the product didn't exist. And yet today, 98% of all adult Americans own one. And guess what? We now have 300,000 people in this country working full-time developing apps for your smartphone. Average income, $100,000. And an awful lot of those people used to be travel agents. In other words, yeah, these people got disrupted. They lost their job due to technology, but found themselves able to get a job thanks to technology. And that's what the uh, data tells us, is that technology is very disruptive, but it also is beneficial in a great many areas. But the key word is disruptive because we want to make sure that we are in the fields that are going to grow as opposed to the fields that are going to become obsolete. So what can they study in college? There are four major themes that I talk about in The Truth About Your Future. A lot of subjects, a lot of chapters in the book about college and careers. And there are four major themes. Thinking, managing, creating, and communicating. Those are the subjects you want to have your children and grandchildren study in college, because those will be largely immune to technology. In fact, they will exploit technology rather than being uh, eliminated by them. So thinking, managing, creating, and communicating. In my book, in fact, I list the 171 jobs that are likely to disappear over the next 10 years, according to a study by Oxford University. So I actually list the 171 jobs that are going to disappear and the 175 jobs that are likely to survive the technological innovative environment that we find ourselves in. So if you want to know, is your job safe? Is your career a good one to get into or stay in? Pick up a copy of The Truth About Your Future and you'll uh, be able to see where your job sits in that spectrum. Okay? Great. I'm Rick Edelman. Do your children or grandchildren have student loan debt? According to a new study from the Student Loan Report, a poll of 2017 graduates, 28% incorrectly believe that they can have the Department of Labor forgive all or part of their loan. One out of four think they can just walk away. They're wrong. 53% think that there's a fee to consolidate their various student loans, that's wrong, too. It's a free service, and a lot of uh, college graduates get scammed by paying fees to consolidate. And yeah, 55% regret taking on so much student loan debt. 20% think that there's no negative consequences for the co-signer if they make a late payment. All that's wrong. Talk with your college graduates. Make sure they understand how their student loans really work. You need our help? We're happy to provide it. Have your students and graduates call us. 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742 or online at rickedelman.com.
0: Learn how to diversify your investments. Try Rick's free guide to portfolio selection at rickedelman.com.
1: I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Brandon Corso, Yolanda Waters, both with me here in the studio, financial planners from Edelman Financial Services. We're heading off to Staten Island, New York. Frank's with us on the telephone. Welcome to the show, Frank. How can we help you?
3: Uh, just a quick question. About sometime last year, my brother-in-law gave me a call, and he was lamenting that his uh, firm that manages his uh, IRA was going to charge him a gazillion dollars because of this whole fiduciary thing. So I said, well, look, why don't you just put the money in a, in an ETF, a total stock market, just to get about it. And he's into tinkering and stuff like that. So we got into this whole fiduciary thing. So my simple question is, how do you know when you're speaking to someone or interviewing someone that they're truly a fiduciary? It's kind of like being a little pregnant, you know? <laughs> you, have, you have to know... What's the definitive question to get the definitive answer yes or I am or not?
1: Or that's a not. That, that's a, a great question Frank. Before we tell you how to determine if your advisor is a fiduciary, we're going to take a step back and explain what a fiduciary is in the first place. Brandon
4: Frank, I'm glad you're asking the question because there continue to be huge, huge confusion with this. So if you're going to have somebody help you with your investments, they're either a fiduciary or not. If they're a fiduciary, there's a legal requirement that they act in your best interest. If they're not a fiduciary, guess what? There's not that legal requirement. So
1: stop right there, Brendan, because this is weird. Most people, I would assume, I mean, we know that three-fourths of all investors are using an advisor. They have a stockbroker, an insurance agent, an investment advisor. They're getting help from someone at a bank. I mean, they work with someone. I'm convinced that most Americans assume that whoever it is they're working with is acting in their best interest. And you're saying that's not the case.
4: It's not the case. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you think of other professions, if I go to a doctor... I'm going to assume that they're going to do what's in my best interest. And somewhere there's some legal requirement that they do so.
1: Lawyers as well, accountants as well.
4: But it's never been the way our business has been set up. And so if you're not a fiduciary and you're what's called a registered representative.
1: Meaning stockbroker. Meaning
4: stockbroker, insurance agent. You're required to give advice that is suitable for the client at the time of the investment. So we've been big fans of some type of fiduciary requirement. So the bottom line is,
1: Frank, to your point. There are lots of people in this industry offering advice to consumers, offering investment recommendations to consumers who are not fiduciaries. So, Yolanda, how do you know whether or not your guy is a fiduciary?
5: Your guy or gal uh, should be able to furnish you Form ADV, uh, which would indicate that they are fiduciaries. What's Form ADV? It's a federal disclosure document required by the FEC.
4: And, and, Frank, you mentioned something, I think, at the beginning of the conversation that you felt, how do you ask? Do you really ask your advisor, are you a fiduciary? Is that an uncomfortable conversation? To heck with that. You flat out ask the question. And any advisor should expect it. It's not going to be the first time that they've been asked that question.
1: And when they answer, they sh- if they say, yes, I'm a fiduciary, then they give you their form ADV. And, in fact, you shouldn't even have to ask. By law, we're required to hand it to you when you're a new client, and offer you a a new updated version on an annual basis. So they either are or they aren't, and you simply ask, and they should provide you their Form ADV. Elaborate, Orlando. what does this Form ADV reveal?
5: Uh, It reveals uh, the firm that you're working for, how long you've been in the industry, the services we provide, experience, the fee schedule, it's pretty much a bio of uh, the, the advisor and the firm that they're working for, everything that they provide, the services provide, and any fees um, uh, for the services that they provide.
1: Because I'll give you a real, real quick question here. Have you ever bought a life insurance policy, Frank?
3: Oh, sure. I, I actually have a few.
1: Okay. So let me ask you this quick question. What was the commission that the insurance agent earned when you bought that policy?
3: Well, I guess there was None. Wrong. Uh oh. <laughs> wrong. I mean,
1: horribly wrong.
3: Okay.
1: I mean, horrifically, horribly, <laughs> terribly wrong. I mean, it is just so wrong. Way wrong, it's answer. just hard to actually really figure out You've
3: got to be kidding me.
1: how wrong that, that really was. Um, and yet, everybody gives the same equally wrong answer. Nobody knows. No consumers, I believe, would be able to effectively or accurately answer the question how much commission did your insurance agent receive? for selling a policy, and that's because it's not disclosed. By contrast, Form ADV fully discloses the fee schedule earned by the advisor. So you know in advance how much money they're earning to work with you. So it's that kind of a difference um, that doesn't exist um, outside of the fiduciary world. So, you're absolutely right to ask the question, and it's important that you understand the answer, and it's really simple. Are you a fiduciary? And if so, let me see your form ADV. If they can't provide you a form ADV, then they are not a fiduciary. Now we're biased, because in our firm at Edelman Financial Services, we are operating under the fiduciary rule. We do serve our clients' best interest, and we do offer our clients Form ADV, so we believe that there's no reason for anyone to work with anyone other than a fiduciary.
3: Is, is it fair to ask if, if someone's trying to sell me an annuity, especially in the retirement uh, uh, sense, I could say, well, what's, what, what are you getting out of this? Or what they're, they're not going to be... Uh, amenable
1: uh, to that kind of question? They prob well, they may or may not be, but the fact is, we have seen people lie. Uh, I saw uh, at a uh, seminar I attended. I was going there, you know, uh, on the sly um, to listen to some insurance agent tout annuities. I wanted to hear the sales pitch myself, and somebody in the audience asked what's the cost, what's the commission if I buy this annuity? You know what he said the answer was? He said, you don't pay any commission, I'm paid by the insurance company. Which is utter absurdity. How could the insurance company pay him unless you bought the annuity? Where did the insurance company get the money to pay him? They got it from the purchase price of the annuity itself. So we've seen some really underhanded activities by uh, people in this industry when they don't act as a fiduciary. So it's a simple question to ask. It's an appropriate and fair question. I want to go back to something, Brandon, that you said a moment ago because it it, kind of caught my ear a little bit. You said that if you are not acting as a fiduciary, the standard is something called the suitability standard which means that the advice they give you, the product recommendation, has to be suitable at the time of purchase. Explain the difference between that and the ongoing obligation of a fiduciary.
4: Oh, it's, I think it's huge because if you think of financial planning, and I don't care if you're talking about insurances, long-term care, life insurance, disability, health insurance, estate planning, college funding, investments, retirement, it's not as if people have to make a decision on these topics and then you're done. That's just not it's just not the way financial planning works. Things change in people's lives. They might have new children or new grandchildren. You may enter retirement or have job changes. And so all of those areas that people address when they do financial planning, it's a process that you you frequently have to revisit. And that's what the fiduciary does. That's why if you have an ongoing relationship with an advisor, you call him or her, you sit down with them, and you address it and you update it. And so the opposite of doing all of that, staying current, means that at one point in time, you make some type of decision that some registered representative or insurance agent says is suitable, and then you're done. Something could happen six months after that that makes it no longer suitable.
1: So talk about, uh, Yolanda, those annoying letters we send every three months to our clients.
5: Yeah, we send out uh, these uh, letters out to our clients, and, and we're constantly checking and making sure nothing has changed uh, in their uh, in their finances, in their life, just in general. Uh, and it does uh, it does allow them to, if something has changed at that time, be prompted. Because at times, when when you're you're living life and, and dealing with life's uh, issues, uh, you forget the call uh, or, or to say, hey, that does affect uh, me from a dollar standpoint or from an estate planning standpoint. So when that letter, is, uh, they, they receive it, it does prompt them to call and, and, and we can have a further discussion.
1: So every three months we're saying to our clients, have you, has your income changed? Has your occupation changed? Marital status changed? Has your health changed? Has your attitude changed? Because we want to revisit the advice we gave you three months ago to make sure it's still valid and current and in your best interest today like it was three months earlier. Let me ask you this, Frank. Is the guy who sold you your car a fiduciary?
3: I doubt it. Yeah,
1: I mean, we all know that, right? We all know the guy selling us a car is not, he's acting in his best interest. He wants to sell you the car. So if you walked up to him and said, man, I just love sports cars and I really want a Corvette because I love to drive fast and I love to drive on open roads and I can afford this car. And the guy said, yeah, I recommend this Corvette and I recommend that you get uh, the automatic instead of the stick. And great. That was a suitable piece of advice and recommendation. But if you said to him, wait a minute, by the way, my girlfriend's pregnant with twins. We're getting married in two (laughs) months and buying a house. All of a sudden, that advice is no longer in your best interest, right? Yes. That's the difference between a commission-based salesman acting on suitability as opposed to a fiduciary acting in your long-term best interest which means I'm not going to tell you to buy a Corvette. I'm going to tell you to buy a minivan.
3: Oh, okay.
1: So there you are, Frank. That's the answer to the question. Are you a fiduciary? Yes or no? If the answer is no, go get someone who says yes.
3: Thank you so much for your help, Rick. You have a great day now.
1: You too. Thank you, Frank, so much for calling. I'm Rick Edelman with Brandon Corso and Yolanda Waters. Taking your telephone calls at 888-PLAN-REC. That's 888 752
0: Named by Talkers Magazine as one of the heavy hundred talk show hosts in America, this is The Rick Edelman Show.
1: It's The Rick Edelman Show, H plan rick online at ricedelman.com. We're going to take some telephone calls, and joining me, are two of the financial advisors from my firm, Brandon Corso and Yolanda Waters, helping me to make sure that we give you the answers to the, in- uh, the questions you've got coming to us. We're talking with Al. He's in Patuxent, River, Maryland. Tell me, Al, what's on your mind? What's your question?
7: Well, I have a question, Rick, about uh, investing and where hobbies might fit into that plan. I, I collect coins. I've got friends who collect guns or decoys, fine art, antiques, where should one or should one
1: fit that into their investment strategy? Do you, Brandon, have clients who are uh,
4: collectors? I do. It's interesting. Al, let me ask a question. What kind of, what kind of things do they collect? Uh, mostly the ones Al mentioned. So I've stamps uh, is another uh, topic I see. Yeah. Al, mm-hmm. uh, these hobbies, these things that you collect um, because you love to do so, would you ever envision selling them? Eventually, but uh, that would be a very long-term... I, I heard hesitation. Yeah, see, that's
1: that's the key. You know, I had a client once who he collected uh, wine, and I asked him, when are you going to sell it? And he said, sell it, I'm going to drink it. I was like, well, then it's not an asset. <laughs> so that's a really key question. So are you willing to consider the sale of this to uh, generate income for you in the future? I am. Okay, then it counts as an investment... Uh, and an asset, which is a key point. Yolanda, do you have clients who are collectors?
5: Yes, I have quite a few clients that collect art, and I have one that uh, collects uh, a lot of wine. So,
1: And they often leave them as a legacy to children and grandchildren. Let's, let's talk about, we know the obvious advantages. One is you get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of whatever it is you're collecting. I mean, I don't think anybody gets really excited about their mutual fund prospectuses, (laughs) Uh, but there is a lot of enjoyment out of whatever item it is you have a hobby uh, in collecting. Uh, And many people feel that they can make a lot of money by shrewdly purchasing because they're knowledgeable about a given field. So we're not going to bother talking about uh, the benefits. Let's instead talk about some of the negatives. What are the risks or disadvantages of collectibles, Brandon?
4: A big one is safekeeping, right? So if you have gold coins, as Al mentioned, he collects um, stamps, wine. These are things that can be destroyed. They could be stolen. And so safeguarding uh, is a big, important issue with any collectible. Um, Another is taxes. They typically do not qualify for the lower capital gains rate. They have a tax rate all their own. And so these are some of the you know, struggles, if you will, when we're dealing with collectibles.
1: I'd add liquidity. I Mm -hmm. mean, you Mm -hmm. can sell a stock or a bond or a mutual fund by making a simple phone call or a click of a button on an online site, but to... To liquidate a collectible isn't necessarily, depending on what it is, as fast and as easy, nor can you be certain as to the uh, price you're going to get because Mm. it's not a regulated marketplace. Stocks and bonds are regulated securities, and we know the spreads. You know, the price is differential between what the buyer pays and the seller receives, but that doesn't happen with comic books um, uh, the same way. Uh, And then there's the biggest problem, according to the FBI, is fraud. Uh, the fact that this is particularly acute in sports memorabilia, where the FBI says upwards of 60% of all sports memorabilia are frauds. Um, so that signature that you bought on that baseball card, the card is fraudulent, and so is the signature. And what you paid a lot of money for isn't worth anything at all. So uh, those are the negatives associated with it. And for those reasons, we do want to put a limit as to how much of your net worth you're placing into uh, the category of collectibles it varies dramatically depending on your overall financial circumstances, but I would get nervous if the value of your collection exceeded 20% of your net worth. Um, Mm -hmm. and that number of 20% is a very big number, meaning you'd have to be very wealthy before I would even tolerate that number for more, for most mere mortals, 5% uh, would be a more reasonable number. So, um, it's certainly fine. It's a non-correlated asset. It's separate from the financial markets. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be willing to spend the time. You have to love it. Uh, and if you meet all of those criteria, uh, go ahead, have fun.
7: All right. Well, I appreciate the uh, advice and the, the restraints on uh, exactly
1: how to rein in my hobby. You're very welcome, Al. There's a chapter on collectibles in my book, The Truth About Money, that you might find of value.
4: All right, will
1: do. Thanks very much for the uh, telephone call. A, um, do you have, uh, uh, this, oh, I don't even know where to go with this because it's so frustrating. People get so annoyed at this. I know what you're thinking. Your kids are out of college. Good for you. Finally, the economic burden is gone. You know, it's that old Jewish joke. When does life begin? When the kids are gone and the dog dies, right? And so near, here you are. Both of the above has happened. And you're finally enjoying yourself. Those college tuition bills are behind you. The weddings are paid for. All the financial burdens are gone. Well, I got bad news for you. According to the Pew Research Center, 61% of parents, 61%, 6 out of 10, who have adult children, kids in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Do you have children in their 50s? That means you're in your 70s, maybe, or 80s. Do you have children in their 40s? 61% of parents have helped their adult children financially in the last 12 months. I'm not just talking about boomerang kids. You know, they graduate college and move back home for a couple of years. I'm talking about your children in their 40s and 50s who suffer marital issues, health issues, job issues, economic issues, medical issues, and they need your help. Has your financial plan taken into consideration the possibility that you might need to provide funding to adult children? Talk with us to learn more. 888 plan wreck Let us show you how we can help you and your kids. 888-752-6742. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. In the midst of the opportunities and the pitfalls, it's best not to go it alone. I guess that's my fundamental message. So let us know how we can help you. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's triple eight seven five two sixty seven forty two. Let us take a look at what you're doing and how you're managing your finances, everything from privacy protection to online finances to the investment decisions that you're making. And let's see if we can't help you improve your circumstances so that you can Increase the likelihood of achieving your personal financial goals. 888 Plan Rick, that's 888 752 6742. Or visit us online at ricestellman.com, that's rickedelman.com. Stay with us for more when we come back here on The Rick Edelman Show.
0: Providing personal finance advice for over 25 years, this is The Rick Edelman Show. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Truth
1: About Money. Rick Edelman here this Independence Day holiday weekend. We're featuring some of our favorite phone calls, so we're giving you the info that you might have missed. And remember, you can visit us at rickedelman.com anytime for help. That's ricedelman.com. Or call us whenever you like during the week at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888 752 Let's go right to your questions. We're going to head off next to Augusta, Georgia. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Yolanda Waters, Brandon Corso joining me in the studio, both financial planners with Edelman Financial Services. And who are we talking to in Augusta? We're talking to Kurt. That's who we're talking to. Welcome to the show, Kurt. How you doing? I'm doing well, Rick. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. What can we do for you? Well, I
8: just wanted to get your take on this uh, question that I've been sort of mulling around in my head. Um, I'm a dental student at the Dental College of Georgia. I'm 25 years old, and I'm just starting out with investing in retirement, sort of new to the game. Don't have very much in the mindset of goals because no one really knows what the future is going to hold, so I just kind of put away what I can. Um, but I was just wondering, is there a real benefit to getting involved with the financial planner now when I have very little capital as of uh, as opposed to later after doing it myself
1: for maybe a few years?
4: Wow, that's a great question. Brandon? Well, I think Kurt deserves that applause button. <laughs> there it is. There's the applause of the day. We love getting phone calls from people in their 20s and 30s because uh, this is easy, easy, easy to procrastinate. So, Kurt, good for you to be addressing this at such a, a young age. Um But so you're doing all the investment and decisions on your own at this point?
2: Well, I get a little
8: bit of advice from my brother, who who actually is one of your clients, Um, and he just sort of gives me a few pointers. Um, I read the Truth About Money. I read eight way or the what the eight things successful people do from from normal people, except extraordinary (laughs) wealth. I read that book. Um, Thank you. I'm glad.
1: All right, so let's take a step backwards, uh, Kurt. How are you paying for college? You're studying medical, you're in dental school. That's pretty expensive.
8: It is, it is. However, I was really fortunate, and I got awarded um, a scholarship through the United States Navy.
1: Wow. And um, they
8: pay me a stipend to live each month, as well as the full tuition of school. And only in return, I get to spend four years serving the men and women in the Navy and Marines.
1: Wow, now there's the applause of the day for sure. Thank you uh, so much for your service, uh, Kurt, that you're engaged in currently and that you're going to be providing to our nation. Thank you so much. So that dramatically improves the financial issues, Yolanda, that uh, Kurt's facing.
5: Absolutely. Uh, I I definitely, Kurt... uh, Never, it's never a bad time to, to seek professional advice. Uh, absolutely not. Um, you know, a it, lot of
1: folks just assume, I'm not rich, I don't need an advisor. Uh,
5: the sooner the better. Um, if, if you talk to people um, uh, way older than yourself, they'll say, you know, their regrets were they didn't start sooner, and you're right at the ground floor starting today, or well, actually before that. I would say it's never a bad time to engage a, a financial planner, uh, to understand what your current situation is and, and the changes that you're going to have over the next several years. All right,
1: so let's talk about the very basics, okay? Let's talk about you know a, tip, a guy like Kurt. Here's someone in, in their twenties, don't have a lot of assets, not making a lot of money. What is the the areas of advice that we can provide help to Kurt for?
5: Estate planning.
1: Estate planning. Elaborate on that, Yolanda.
5: At 25, you're over the age of 18, so at this point in time, you would want to get a will. Uh, just your some of your basic estate planning documents. So, so do
1: you have one, Kurt? Uh, no, I don't. Are you married? No, sir. So if you die, what happens to your stuff?
8: Well, um, when I set up my accounts and when I set up my life insurance and, and whatnot through the military, I just gave it all to my mom. So if I if anything bad happens, she's going to get it, and uh, she can do what she wants to do. Is he necessarily
1: correct about that, Yolanda? Is his mom, if he doesn't have a will, is his mom necessarily going to get everything that he
5: owns? And that's not necessarily true, no. Why not? Okay. Uh, it, it really, it's going to depend on uh, state law, but, um, you know, he's he would die intestate. So at that point in time, it's going to fall on the states to make a determination as to who's going to get. And he did mention he has a, a brother as well. So they're going to look at those laws.
1: So, Kurt, if your goal is to have your mom be your heir, you need a will that says so. But it even goes beyond a will. What happens if he gets injured and he's incapacitated, unconscious in a hospital? What happens, Brandon, if he... Uh, can't express his wishes for, regarding medical treatment.
4: There's a problem because you need those legal documents to help um, presumably parents, or in Kurt's case, maybe a brother, make that decision. So, Kurt, you need a living will, you need advanced medical directives, and without that, you know, think of yourself, uh, God forbid, as terminal. Um, if you're on life support, if you're on a ventilator, if you haven't talked to your parents or your family or put legally in writing how you would want to be treated, they're going to be probably very conflicted. They're not going to know what would Kurt want and so it's very important to have those documents done so it's a really relief to the family again if that were to occur. So
1: estate state planning is necessary for Kurt to spend uh, attention on. What's the next thing he's got to pay attention to?
4: All different types of insurance and so we need to make sure that he has from the very bottom up he has health insurance, uh, disability, um, so we have to protect against things that can go wrong next. What's,
1: what comes after insurance?
5: Okay. Uh, making sure that your emergency fund is adequate. Uh, so um, you're looking at what your expenses are and having at least a multiple of that starting out maybe at six months and growing in that as time goes on. So do
1: you own a car, Kurt? I do. So what happens if the car breaks down? I mean, it's just it's, we're talking about the real basic, simple things in everyday life. What happens if you incur an unexpected invoice that costs a couple of thousand bucks where do you get the money to pay for that without having to turn to credit cards or liquidate investments uh, which might be down in value at the moment so cash reserves is key
8: oh yeah the first thing i did when i got started was set up an emergency fund that's the first thing you got to do So I've got right now about eight months of living expenses stashed away in a high-yield savings account.
1: Excellent. And so after those three are done, we've got the insurance, we've got the estate planning, we've got the cash reserves. Now we're ready to talk about the one thing Kurt began the conversation with, which is?
4: The investments. The ETF and does it matter the type I pick? And the answer is, yeah, it matters a lot. And the fact that you're asking the question – do I need to get a second opinion, leads me to believe that it's certainly not gonna hurt. And so if you sit down with an advisor who can talk about all these different areas for you and have you really think about some things maybe you haven't yet thought about, uh, develop goals, I think that'll be a natural course during this process. Um, You're either gonna finish up and say, you know what, I have greater confidence now, maybe I have more ideas, but I'm gonna keep doing it myself. Or perhaps you say, you know what, this is something I wanna turn over. and so. Uh, I do think it makes sense. It's not going to hurt to get a second opinion. It is all about the goals, right,
1: Yolanda?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you, and, and those goals are going to change uh, over time. So, by working with someone who sits down with you and looks at what your goals are today and what you're trying to accomplish, but also kind of points out things you might have overlooked or where you might be deficient, um, those goals are going to change over time. Uh, you know, I would imagine uh, you might have a significant other and might marry that person in the future. So, at that point in time, your life is going to change and you'll get more advice and more guidance. Your estate planning documents will have to. To change. All those different variables can be uh, bought, uh, brought up in, in your planning discussions. And
1: so it's not, use- so many folks assume that the conversation with a financial advisor is all about investing. And if I don't have a lot of money to invest, I don't need an investment advisor. If I don't want uh, someone else to do it for me, I like doing it myself, I don't need to talk to a financial planner. And what we're demonstrating here is that there's a huge amount of things to talk about. Estate planning, wills and trusts, insurance, cash reserves. We haven't even talked about other issues such as employee benefits and taxes and home ownership and mortgages. Automobiles, whether you should buy it or lease it. Uh, and so, Kurt, to answer the question you began earlier, should you bother talking with a financial planner? The answer is absolutely. And the sooner you start, the better off you're going to be. The fact you're in your 20s is absolutely thrilling to be having this conversation with you right now.
8: Well, thank you for giving me a very thorough answer. Um, I certainly hadn't really thought about getting a will, and I guess I'll have to find a lawyer for that. But um,
1: and if you really need appreciate- uh, and if you need a referral, give us a call. We uh, know lots of uh, terrific attorneys uh, who. Uh, Focus on estate planning uh, all around the country. So we'd be happy to send you a referral.
8: Thank you very much.
1: I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Do you need to borrow money? You know where 52% of Americans go to borrow money? Friends and family. Half of those needing to borrow money go to friends and family when they're short on cash. What's the average amount of money they borrow? All this according to Finder.com. What's the average amount of money they borrow? 3,200 bucks. Why would someone go to you with a need for $3,200? Simple. No bank will lend them the money. No credit card will lend them the money. They've already maxed out those cards. So you need to be careful before you say yes to loaning money to family or friends. Odds are pretty good you're going to lose either the family or the friend or the money. You might lose both. 42% say they use credit cards to borrow money. 23% say they use personal loans. 14% 14% go to payday loans. They cash in their employer's paycheck in order to get quick cash. If you need help, if your family members need help, have them give us a call. 888 plan Rick, We can help you figure out a way to get on the right path so that you're not making expensive, unrecoverable mistakes with your personal finances. 888 752 online at rickedelman.com.
0: Of information on personal finance, go to the education page at rickedelman.com.
1: It's the Rick Edelman Show, 888 H Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. We're gonna take some telephone calls joining me are two of the financial advisors from my firm, Brandon Corso and Yolanda Waters, helping me to make sure that we give you the answers to the questions you've got coming to us. We're going to head to the beach this weekend, Point Pleasant Beach in New Jersey. Bob, welcome to the program. How are you?
3: Hello, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. I am 59 years old, and I live in New Jersey. I've been retired for a few years. And I had the good fortune of participating in a thrift plan, and I've accumulated a bunch of company stock. And there's a um, procedure or a process called N-Net Unrealized Appreciation that I think would be helpful for my tax situation, and I have a couple-part question. Um, I believe I'm going to be in a 25% at least tax bracket for the foreseeable future, And I'm wondering if I should take my NUA out early to stop the appreciation on that stock.
1: Got it. uh, So so the real question here is NUA, net unrealized appreciation, and should Bob take advantage of it? So what's the advantage of it, Brandon?
4: Well, the advantage is taxes. And so when you have a retirement plan, most of the time the money in that plan is pre-tax, as Bob's money is. And so when money comes out of those plans in retirement, it's all taxed as ordinary income. If you have company stock like Bob does, there's a special rule, this NUA rule, where you're allowed to take the stock and move it out to a brokerage account. It's, you're doing a lump sum. It's coming out of the plan. Now, the good news on that is the profit. That's what NUA is. It's the difference between what was invested and the value of the stock. And so yeah. if you do nothing, Bob, if you, if you don't do the NUA strategy and you simply take money out of that plan whenever you need the income or when you're required uh, after you hit 70 and a half, it's all taxed as ordinary income. The NUA would allow Bob to take the stock and take it out of the plan. Now, if he does that, Bob, you're taxed on what's called your cost basis, the total value of it, what you invested as ordinary income right away. So why in the world would you do it? The reason you'd consider it is because the profit amount would be taxed at capital gains rates, which are typically lower. So in other words, he either pays the
1: top bracket on all of it or he gets the capital gains rate on some of
4: it. And so, Bob, really what you need to do is you need to do multi-year tax planning. Sometimes people look at taxes in the current year and they think, oh well that's enough, it's gonna help me make a decision. That's not what you need. You need to make projections many years into the future under both scenarios to try to figure out which one um, that is best for you. Now, a couple negatives. If you do the NUA, if you're trying to diversify, you've got a lot of money in this one company.
1: So this is why we need to do, as Brandon suggested, a long-term diversified examination for not only your investments, but your tax strategy as well. Um, The NUA can be very helpful because it's designed to help you lower your tax liability, but there are um, limitations associated with liquidity which could impact the investment risks that you're experiencing. Understood. So you're a great candidate to meet with a financial planner and a tax advisor who can evaluate this, both scenarios simultaneously to come up with a strategy that makes the most sense for your situation. Do you have an accountant who works with you?
3: Uh, we had one, and uh, we don't any longer.
1: Okay. So we're, we can provide you a referral. Uh, we work with a lot of talented tax advisors uh, not far from where you live in New Jersey, so feel free to contact us and we 'll be happy to provide you referrals to some folks who can help you with us so Very good. The, thank get, you you 're welcome Bob. get the advice first and then act on that advice um, by the way, when we deal with referrals um, had to have, talk about that
4: Brandon how does that work well the two um, professions that clients tend to ask us most frequently for help would be a tax preparer, a tax advisor, and a state planning attorney to do all of those very important documents. And so that is maybe the second and third leg of the stool of doing the comprehensive planning that somebody needs. And so we do our best to find people um, that have great experience, that are responsive, that have great expertise, and so we try to interview them to make sure that the names we're giving out um, are going to do a good job. At the end of the day, really, what one of the things we stress is, if you're going to find a new professional, go ahead and call two, maybe three. Start a conversation about, hey, how do you work? How do you charge? What's the process going to be like? And you'll start to get a sense to make sure you narrow down and find the right person for you.
1: So, Yolanda, uh, is there a financial relationship between us and any of the attorneys or accountants we refer our clients to?
4: No,
5: there's not. Uh, we generally. Uh, Are looking for professionals that want to help uh, their clients and it's a it's a mutual thing it helps us uh, knowing that we've spoken to the uh, professionals whether it's a state planning uh, professional accountant or uh, we have lending professionals as well Um, we have a conversation with them ask them the same questions you're going to ask how are you compensated and things like uh, like that but at the end of the day, um, we we want someone that's going to be responsive um, and follow up with our uh, with clients uh, or uh, anyone that we're uh, giving the information out to.
1: So if you need a referral, feel free to give us a call. And if we uh, have folks we know of uh, near you, we're happy to share those with you. Stay with us. More of your calls are next on the Truth About Money. Triple Eight Plan Rick. That's the phone number to call. My colleagues at Edelman Financial happy to take your phone call, get you all the answers to all the personal finance questions you've got. Triple 888- Eight. You can also check us out online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. You'll find an awful lot of personal finance content and information for you, including videos and audios on my website at rickedelman.com. And my colleagues at Edelman Financial will help you get the answers to the info that you need the very most.
0: For free articles on personal finance, sign up for Rick's email update at rickedelman.com.
1: You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Rick Edelman here in the studio with Yolanda Waters and Brandon Corso, financial planners with Edelman Financial Services. We're taking telephone calls at 888 plan rick that's the number that tony called he's in plymouth michigan hi tony you're on the air how are you
7: hey how's it going great
1: how can we help you
7: well i have a question about uh, rmd i uh um am a little concerned about the progressive nature of it as as time goes by um just just to give you a little bit of background of what got me into the panic that i am um i i have no company funded pension so it's all on me that's that's good i um, figure I need about a little over two million to retire, and I about twenty years ago I made up this spreadsheet that uh, I enter my values and and based on some rate of return, it projects it out into the future and then the next sheet I enter the date that I want to retire and it picks off the value at that date and then projects it into the future at some lower rate of return and I enter my um, what I want to take out as a rate of return you know to, to pay my bills. Um, in today's dollars, and it, it projects that into the future, the date that I want to retire based on some inflation rate. All right,
1: hang on one second. And, hang on one second, Tony. Okay. Yolanda, what's Tony's yep. occupation?
5: Oh, he's an engineer.
1: <laughs> Tony, what's your occupation? <laughs>
5: I, I'm an acoustic engineer. I, I don't
7: know if you've
1: ever seen one of <laughs> those. And Yolanda gets the applause <laughs> of the day for correctly predicting Tony's occupation. It wasn't much of a stretch, no, was it, Yolanda? not at all. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those
7: signs that says, I'm an engineer written incorrectly three times and crossed out and says I'm good at math. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one of those on my wall at work.
1: Okay, so uh, so you said that you're fearful that as you age, your withdrawal requirements are going to increase due to the required minimum yeah. distribution. And you want to know what you so, can so do I, about that.
7: Yeah, because I, I, I listen to you pretty regularly, so I've known about that for a while. And I looked at my chart when I was going to retire and looked at the first year and said, i got to re- withdraw way more than that i don't have a problem well i'm not sure who was listening to your show or somehow i saw the table and i all my grandparents lived to ripe old ages and i've heard you talk about exponential technologies you know life expectancy is going to go up and so i went down the table to 100 and said oh my gosh i'm going to have to withdraw a million dollars ah, four hundred and some thousand dollars in tax that's way more than i want to pay and then I went back and stepped through year by year as it goes up, and it's not quite
3: that bad, but still at, at like wait a minute, wait eight, a minute, wait a minute, wait, old, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait wait, okay what's the fallacy brandon and tony's thinking
4: I think the fallacy tony you said you're fifty five and you just said that out in year one hundred <laughs> <laughs> meaning forty five years. Well, And so I can't.
7: And and, and I did calm down a little
3: bit after that. Well, that's That's good. But here's
1: the other. Here's the other issue, Tony. Not only Brandon's point, which is the number one point that you're looking at, you're worrying about something that's 45 years away, uh, and you're assuming tax law doesn't change between now and then. There's another issue. Yeah. You're ignoring the fact that you have been enjoying zero taxes for decades, and you're going to be enjoying zero taxes for decades to come. Mm-hmm. did you ever go to a nice restaurant sure you had a really nice meal white tablecloth, waiters in a tuxedo fabulous bottle of wine pleasant environment nice music gorgeous view out the window fabulous evening and then the bill shows up what do you do? You start jumping up and down furious that the bill has arrived? Or do you acknowledge this was the price to pay for the hours of enjoyment we've just had?
7: No, for sure. I, I'm, I'm okay with paying taxes on it. But, I mean, with my big fat mortgage and my deductions, now I can teeter in the way bonuses come in one year to the next, teeter between the 15 and 25% range. And the way I figure it, they're going to force me to re- to withdraw 250 that's going to push me into the 39. So should I have a different strategy than I do?
1: So Tony, you're 55 now, right? Yep. You don't have to make withdrawals for another 15 years, right? Yep. So, so why not start sooner? Why not start to take some of the money between now and age 70? So that you can control how much is taken, so you can control the tax liability incurred in order to prevent the account value from being so big in your 70s that the required withdrawals force you into a higher tax bracket. If you have to take money out of the IRAs to sustain your lifestyle, then the RMD becomes irrelevant. As you said, you're going to withdraw more from the RMD than the law requires from a lifestyle perspective. Well,
4: until I'm like 85. But that's 30 years away. So if this isn't a problem for you at age 70 and 75 and 80. But as you plug it in, it's so many years into the future, but things are going to change dramatically. The RMD rules might be very different at that point. It's possible that because people are living longer, the government decides that you have to take out at a later age or a smaller percentages. You're also assuming that the tax code is going to stay the same. We know that's going to change. Of course, we don't know how, but we know it will. And so the brackets are going to be higher than they are now because in the future, 20, 30 years from now, a dollar is not going to be worth what a, a dollar is today. So I don't think there's any strategies to take care of what you're worried about when you're 85. But what we can tell you is that so far into the future, there's going to be plenty to be different at that time.
1: So it does make sense to do the analysis you're doing, the spreadsheet calculations. I would recommend that you meet with a financial planner, provide your financial planner with your spreadsheet. So the planner can analyze it to see if your spreadsheet is accurate or not, or allow the planner to develop their own spreadsheet, because that's what we do all the time. We have our own processes and methodologies and software that we use. So instead of using yours, we'll just show you what our calculations produce so that we can verify for you if your assumptions are correct and if your output is accurate. And we can tell you what strategies are available that you might want to consider that could help avoid the concern that you're expressing. And if we can't avoid the concern that you're expressing, we're going to change the nature of the game. In other words, instead of fixating on the fact that your taxes are going to be exorbitant once you're age 85, let's instead focus on the fact that you have the income you need to support yourself in the lifestyle you want for as long as you're going to live. And if that occurs, who cares what the taxes are? Right?
7: Yeah, and I guess my assumptions were based on a lower tax rate than that, and that was what I was worried about. But I guess, I guess, yeah, 30 years from now, the value of a dollar that the brackets are going to have to go up
1: anyway 30 years from now 30 years from now is eight presidents from now it's 15 congresses from now can we really pretend that we know what's going to be going on at that time Yeah. yeah yeah you're worried about stuff unnecessarily tony Bottom line is, you're in excellent financial condition from what you're describing. I mean, if you're not only worried about this when you're 85, you're in great condition. So let's focus on the accomplishments and successes you've established to secure your lifestyle. Let's emphasize that and just acknowledge that the taxes is nothing more than the bill after a great meal. Okay. Tony, thank you so much for calling. Thank you. So I want to ask you this question. Do you remember... 2008, do you remember the credit crisis of zero eight and the de- terrible uh, demise of the stock market at the time when the stock market fell 65% in value over about a year and a half? Do you remember what caused it? It was the housing crisis. Do you remember what it was like to be able to buy a house and apply for a mortgage And be given a mortgage without any regard to your income, without any regard to whether you had any assets, and without any regard to the value of the house. Well, as a result, lots of people got houses through mortgages they had no ability to ever repay. And when, in fact, interest rates started to go up and those mortgage costs monthly rose, people in fact defaulted on their mortgages and so many millions did that the mortgage industry collapsed and along with it by extension, the stock market. Well, you remember those days, right? And that's why government changed the rules and eliminated one of those so-called ninja loans, no income, no asset, no job, so that people could not get mortgages unless they could in fact prove they had the ability to pay them back. Well, those days have returned.
6: you got to be kidding me.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. Not in the mortgage arena. Not in the context of buying a house. But in the context of buying a college degree. Yeah. The federal student loan program asks virtually nothing about your income, your existing debts, the amount of your savings, your credit score, or your ability to repay. And it's virtually impossible, if you do default on that loan, to get it wiped out in bankruptcy, at least in the housing crisis. When someone lost their house, that's all they did, they lost their house. But you can't get away from the student loan debt, even if you file bankruptcy. It's an unconscionable situation. And as a financial planning strategy, what it means for you is this. Do not assume that merely because you can obtain the student debt needed to go to college that it's the proper thing to do. Any more than back in 08, the fact that they gave you the loan doesn't mean you should have bought the house. Today, just because you can get the student loan doesn't mean you should Obtained the indebtedness to get that college degree. Instead, just as before we would say buy a cheaper house, today we'll say get a less expensive degree. If you need help with this, call us at 888-PLAN-REC. Don't have happened to you in the world of college what happened to millions of people regarding their mortgages and homes. 888-PLAN-REC, online at ricedelman.com.
0: with the founder of one of the nation's largest independent investment advisory firms, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: The Rick Edelman Show continues, 888-PLAN-RICK, 752 6742 You can also check us out online At rickedelman.com, that's ricedelman.com. Click that button. I want to talk to an advisor. You'll find an awful lot of personal finance content and information for you, including videos and audios, on my website at rickedelman.com. And we're ready to help you, uh, help you with your investment management, whatever it is you happen to be needing, just like we do for about 30,000 other families and individuals just like you. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a major life event? Well, how would you even define that? Well, um, you know, birth or death of uh, a family member, change in job, change in marital status, moving, uh, major change in income or expenses, uh, assets or debts, uh, health, uh, any major life event. Have you ever incurred one? Um, of course you have. We all have. Well, let me ask you this. Has that life event affected your finances? I'll bet it did. And when it did, did you review your retirement plan? According to a recent survey published by Pension Benefits, 53% of those surveyed who have experienced a major life event that impacted their finances did not review the impact of it on their financial plan. That's crazy. You need to recognize that any major life event you occur, your daughter's announced she's getting married, your son just got uh, accepted to MIT, you need to go review your financial plan. You got a life event? Call us anytime, 888-PLAN-REC, or 24-7-ONLINE at ricedelman.com. We're going to continue with our telephone calls. We're heading off to Newport, Rhode Island. Sharon's with us on the phone. How are you doing, Sharon? Hi, good, thanks.
2: Thanks for taking my call.
1: You're very welcome. How can we help?
2: Um, I would say about a year ago, uh, my sister um, sort of introduced us the, to the idea of self-directed IRAs and purchasing a rental home through them. She's a, a real estate lawyer in Indiana, so um, she, she's been there a long time. But we live up, up in, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, so you know, the housing markets and everything is a little bit different. But we've had a hard time trying to find um, both a financial uh, analyst, I guess, and a tax person to help us with I, Nobody in our area seems to have any sort of knowledge about it.
1: Okay. Let me tell you why you should not invest in real estate in a self-directed IRA. First okay. of all, you cannot borrow money to purchase property inside an IRA. You have to pay cash. And when you purchase the property you have to operate the property strictly from the assets inside the IRA. So if you run into maintenance and repairs or you lose a tenant and you don't have the rental income to pay the property taxes, you can't pay any of the bills out of money other than inside the IRA. Let me take it a step further. Because it's an IRA, you have to withdraw the money starting at age 70 and a half. Well... A house isn't a liquid asset. You can't liquidate the living room to create the cash necessary to make the required minimum distribution. So what are you going to do when the time comes to sell the asset to generate the income necessary to pay the taxes? It creates a massive tax burden that would not have existed had you not been investing inside the IRA. I'll take it a step further. When you finally do find a custodian willing to manage the account, and they do exist in the country, you're correct, they're going to charge you typically 1.5% per year. That's a fee that you could avoid had you not done it inside the IRA. When you finally do generate the profits, Because the house grows in value as you're expecting it to grow, and the rental income is profitable as you're expecting it to be, because if you weren't expecting either one of those, you wouldn't be doing it in the first place. Those profits are all going to be subject to taxes at your maximum tax bracket. Ordinary income, because it's inside of an IRA. You lose depreciation. You lose amortization. You lose capital gains treatment on the profits why are you wanting to do this inside of an IRA? It makes no sense. In fact, it makes such little sense that that's why virtually nobody's willing to do it. That's why you haven't been able to find anyone because everybody says, this is dumb. Doesn't make any sense. So I'm not saying don't buy real estate. Since you do want to buy the real estate, just don't do it in the IRA. Okay? Okay. Glad we were able to be of help. I know it's not the answer you wanted to hear. Uh,
2: Well, we need to know all sides.
1: Indeed. And I'm glad you're doing as thorough a level of due diligence as you are uh, and a level of research so that you're not um, going to be surprised. Perfect. Okay. Uh, One of the biggest subjects people want to talk about is retirement planning, and that's why we've got this seminar we've been doing for quite a while, but it's going to be soon coming to an end. So if you haven't been to our seminar, Planning for Retirement, You'll need to uh, take advantage of it while you can. It covers three essential topics. Protecting your IRAs and retirement accounts. Making sure you're managing the money the correct way. Making sure you're generating the income you need from them in retirement. Number two, social security. How to make sure you're getting the most you can from the benefits allowed to you. And third, beneficiary designations. Your IRAs, your retirement accounts at work, insurance, annuities. Make sure that your heirs are the errors that you intend and not accidental errors by doing it wrong or not having revisited it since you opened those accounts. All three of those subjects are the focus of this uh, seminar. Just $15 a person, 25 a couple, and you can register online at rickedelman.com or by calling 888-PLAN-RICK. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. you know there are 10,000 people turning age 65 every day in the United States? By 2030, according to the Census Bureau, there will be 72 million Americans over the age of 65 across the country. And there are already 43 million people providing care to their elder family members. Is that you or someone in your family? It's not enough that someone in the family needs care. You know who else needs care? The caregivers themselves. Yeah. So, and what about people who don't have members of the family able to provide help? Well, now there's a new web service. It's called Elder Concierge, and there are a variety of web services that can help hook you up with someone able to provide elder care services, either on a regular ongoing basis or just as a respite to allow the family caregiver time to take a break. They charge typically 30 to 70 bucks an hour, something you might want to consider. You can easily search them online for an Elder Concierge service in your neighborhood. I'm Rick Edelman. Thanks for spending part of your holiday weekend with us. We're back next week, and I'll answer all your questions. If you need help in the meantime, call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742, online at rickedelman.com. Remember, if you love the show, tell a friend. If you hate the show, tell an enemy. We'll see you next week.
0: Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.